Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think you would have really liked this cave because it's a talus cave. Oh, it's a talus cave. I did not know that. Well, we're going to have to go back. Do you even know what a talus cave is? No, no idea what a talus cave is. A talus cave is formed when huge boulders fall into a canyon or a mountain slope, and the space underneath is a talus cave. So basically, you're walking under huge slabs of rocks and boulders that fell. That are perfectly stable. I'm sure. I mean, they're, they're so stable that they fell off of a mountain and formed a cave, but they're stable now. That's right. Let's go. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. This is a mailbag episode where we answer questions about the national parks, road trips, camping, backpacking gear, relationships, and pretty much whatever anyone wants to ask us. <laughs> That's right. Today, we'll be answering questions about what to do in Pinnacles National Park if you only have one day, which national parks let you take your dog on the trails, what is in our emergency road kit, how to maneuver the ferry to Olympic National Park, and much, much more. Lots of great questions today, and hopefully some great answers coming up next. All right, mailbag episode. We have a lot of questions, Matt, so we have no time to chat, no time for small talk. Are you worried that I do too much small talk? Am I the one who does too much small talk? I know how you like to visit and discuss the latest uh, news and current events. Is that right? And, I, yeah, what's going on in your life. I don't think I'm the one who does too much small talk or inappropriate laughing. No, no, I don't think so, you are either. Karen, let's get into it. Okay. So we're going to talk about Pinnacles National Park in California, what to do if you only have one day to spend there. Now, we have gotten this question from about five different people, so I'm not going to give anybody's name because there are so many people who asked. Yeah, let's talk about Pinnacles, what to do if you only have one day. All right, then let's get right to it. No small talk. <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> All right. Pinnacles is located in Central California. <laughs> it's what, what was, what was it? It's the 59th National Park, I think. Yes. Number 59. We had to actually add this one on when we did our 
National Park journey. Well, that's right. We had visited 58 national parks. We wrote the book. And just before we published the book, what happened? Oh, look, Pinnacles National Another Park. park. <laughs> it's now a national park. Yeah, it became, uh, <laughs> came into existence. Now, when we visited, when it became a brand new national park, this was in uh, 2013, there was practically no one there. We were there in the spring and we had the place to ourselves. So I was... <laughs> I was going to say that it's probably the least well-known of California's nine national parks. But when I got on their website the other day to look something up, they had this big warning on the website in red. Pinnacles experiences extremely high visitation on weekends, holidays, and throughout the spring. Expect long lines and delays getting into the park between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Visitors hiking High Peaks, Condor Gulch, and the Moses Spring Loop should arrive before 8 a.m. So all of you people who are asking about what to do, you're obviously going to get there early. Karen, is there anything about the history of the park that our listeners should know? (laughs) Okay, you know I had to add History Channel only because I don't know if we will do another episode about Pinnacles. And so even though it became a national park in 2013, It was originally established as a national monument way back in 1908 by President Theodore Roosevelt. And as we have said in many, many of our episodes, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, also played a huge part in developing this park. So in 1933, a CCC camp was established for for about 200 men who worked on additions to the trail network. They improved the road in Bear Gulch, they built tourist cabins, and they constructed the dam at Bear Gulch Reservoir. And the park's visitor center and headquarters were built in 1936-1937 from local stone by the CCC. Local stone. I like local stone built visitor centers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and they seem to last forever. They do. They're still there. Yeah. <laughs> so again, we can thank the CCC for some amazing work in Pinnacles National Park. And one thing you should know about this park is there is a west area and there is an east area and the roads do not connect those two areas. It's essentially the Pinnacles, which are I don't know what you call them, little mountains. They're, you know. Pinnacles. Pinnacles, pinnacles <laughs> of rock. Mountainous pinnacles of rock. They they run through the center of the park and basically split the park east to west. And so if you start on the west side, you can't get to the east side from the west side. So it's almost like two parks. So what we're going to talk about today is what we did on the east side, which is the more developed of the two sides. First of all, the hike we did, we absolutely loved, and we would highly recommend it. It's the Condor Gulch High Peaks Loop. I really enjoyed that hike. It's about 5.3 miles round trip. You should factor three to five hours to do that. Mm-hmm. Elevation gains about 1,300 feet. I would say it was moderately strenuous. Uh, there are parts at the at the top that are uh, a little more strenuous. Oh, I loved it. So you're hiking up along the, these Pinnacles rock formations, and it's pretty cool how they did the trail. They actually carved steps out of the rocks in a lot of places, and they have handrails. So there are some kind of tricky spots where you are, you know, climbing up these very steep rock sections and then back down on the other side. 
You know, if you have maybe knee issues or something, this might not be the hike for you, but we thought it was great fun. It wasn't scary drop-offs or anything like that. I I never thought it was dangerous. No, It's just there are parts where you do need a a handrail, which they've installed, you know, to help you up the steps or whatever, uh, particularly difficult areas. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't think it was particularly dangerous. No, but a great fun loop hike. And if you're going to do this... You want to bring your binoculars. Yes, to watch the birds, Karen. You have a thing for condors. I I don't know why. Um, (laughs) Maybe it's because they came very close to becoming extinct, and now they're back. So that's a success story. Yeah, the California condors. This is a great place to see them from the High Peaks Loop Trail. So in 1967, condors were listed as an endangered species. But despite this protection, their population continued to decline and dropped to a low of 22 in the 1980s. Only 22 left on the planet. Yeah, that's not many to reestablish the population. (laughs) But but they did. Well, they trapped those 22 and they placed them in a captive breeding program in an effort to save the species from extinction. Pinnacles National Park is the only National Park Service unit that manages a release site for captive-bred California condors. They have a particular expertise in how to put birds that have been raised in captivity back into the wild. Exactly. I guess not back into the wild. They never were wild. So that's Mm -hmm. the special steps to do that so that they can survive. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a lot of information on the National Park website. If you're interested in learning how they go about this, it's an entire program. And these birds, they have uh, tracking collars. They're monitored throughout their life, where they're going, their health. Um, When they die, they do autopsies to see what killed these birds. So it it is actually really interesting, but this is a great place to see them. And now there are more than 22. Yes. I think the last count, the last count that I could find was um, the end of 2018. There were a total of 488. Well, that's great. So uh, they are coming back and there are a lot of programs. There are other programs in other parts of the West that, that protect these birds. I know the Grand Canyon has condors. Zion has Mm -hmm. them. Yes. So yeah, plenty of areas for them now to uh, reestablish their population. Now, another thing you could add on to your day, because that hike won't take all day, is you could hike and explore the Bear Gulch Cave. Now, we didn't get a chance to do that when we were there because it was closed at the time. They do close it to protect the bats. They are, what are those bats, Matt? I wrote it down. Mexican free-tail bats? Are they no. <laughs> they are, they are vampire bats? Townsend's big-eared bats. Ah, the big-eared bats. Mm, okay. Those big-eared bats. So there are two sections to the Bear Gulch Cave, and they sometimes operate independently of each other. The lower main section is open for most of the year, but that upper section is rarely open for more than a few weeks each year to protect the bats that are living there. So check the park website for the Bear Gulch Cave schedule. I know mid-May to mid-July, the entire cave is closed. Do they need extra protection because of their big ears? You'll have I don't to know. Do I, a I, I think that's a little that. disrespectful to <laughs> point out their big ears. Like that's that's how they're known as big-eared bats. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, there's pictures of them on the website. They're very cute. Very cute. Oh, they're cute. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm sorry that we missed that because yeah. you know how I love caves and uh, big-eared bats. I mean, that's kind of my <laughs> specialty. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, Matt. I think you would have really liked this cave because it's a talus cave. Oh, it's a talus cave. I did not know that. <laughs> well, we're going to have to go back. Do you even know what a talus cave is? No, no idea what a talus cave is. <laughs> a talus cave is formed when huge boulders fall into a canyon or a mountain slope, and the space underneath is a talus cave. So basically, you're walking under huge slabs of rocks and boulders that fell. That are perfectly stable. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, they're, they're so stable that they fell off of a mountain and formed a cave, but they're, but they're stable now. That's right. Let's go. Uh-huh. Let's go do it. Yeah. So if you're interested in doing this, you park at the Bear Gulch parking lot, and then you have to hike the Moses Spring Trail first to access then the, the Bear Gulch Cave Trailhead. And, and the whole thing's about a mile and a half round trip. Right. And I think it's pretty moderate. Uh, and I've seen photos and it looks really cool. So we will have to add that onto the list for next time. That's what we would recommend in a day at Pinnacles. Also, just note that this park gets really hot in the summertime. So if you're planning a trip, if you want to go see Pinnacles, we would highly recommend either the spring or the fall. There you go. Mm-hmm. Some ideas of what to do when you go to Pinnacles yeah, we National thought it was, Park. Yeah. yeah, we thought it was a great park. Okay, Karen, what is our next question? <laughs> our next question comes from Ryan, and Ryan asked, Which parks are actually dog-friendly in the sense that I want to go on trails that aren't paved? I'm going to White Sands next week, and everything there is dog-friendly. That's the first time I've encountered that. Is it the last? Okay, so that was Ryan's first question, and then he came back. This was a DM, and he sent a second question Part two, why are horses typically okay on the trails, but dogs aren't, especially when horses leave their waste behind? Hmm. All right, Ryan. Okay, lots of parts to that question. <laughs> One thing we should say, though, he, he mentioned White Sands, and, and we experienced this also in Great Sand Dunes in Colorado, is that, uh, yes, those areas may be dog-friendly, but be super careful in the heat of the summer because the sand can be extremely hot on dogs' paws. Mm. I know rangers have pointed this out to us. So if you're going to take your dog on those hot sand dunes, uh, either have paw protection or just you know go early when it's not as hot. Exactly. Yeah, that's a very good, very good point. Thank you. So the whole dog thing in the national parks is a very contentious subject. There are people who just cannot understand why they can't bring their dogs. And there are people who never want to see a dog. So we're going to talk about this, but just know, like, we're Switzerland on this. We're neutral, right? So yeah, don't- this is, we don't have a, we don't have a dog. We don't literally do not have a dog in this fight. And we'll I just I, give you information. I will say the reason we don't currently have a dog, we, we had a dog when our kids were growing up. We love dogs, but Once our kids left home, uh, went off to college and established their own lives, and we started to travel, we didn't think it was fair to have a dog in our life that we were constantly boarding or taking with us, and the dog would have to sit in the car. So we made that choice for this period in our lives to not have a dog, but I know gosh, most households do have a dog. So let's talk about some of the reasons the National Park Service doesn't allow dogs on most of the trails. 
Well, one of the big reasons is that dogs are just naturally being predators. They have a tendency, not all dogs, but they have a tendency to bother the wildlife, even if they're leashed. So you got fecal matter uh, that's left behind, and we see this all the time. People leave their dog's waste behind. That waste can carry disease and parasites uh, that can be passed on to wildlife. Uh, wild animals react to the dogs in different ways. In, in a lot of cases, it deters wildlife from being in and around the trails. So you're less likely to see it if mm-hmm. there's a lo- lot of dogs. Right. And sometimes the wildlife will abandon their young or their critical habitats when dogs come near. Yeah. Yes. That's kind of one of the big reasons why uh, they don't allow dogs on certain trails. Right. So I'll just read a few others. Um, dogs can negatively impact the park's habitat. A, a big one is that dogs can bother other park visitors. They jump on them. They bark. Visitors are trying to get around people's dog leashes. And as crowded as the popular national park trails are now, can you even imagine what it would be like if everyone had a dog? Just imagine like Delicate Arch or Grinnell Glacier. You know, you're trying to maneuver through the crowds, but now everybody has a dog on a leash. It would be a complete nightmare. Right. And in a lot of cases, it's not great for the dog themselves. They, they can endanger themselves. I mean, there's cliffs. There's thermal pools, ticks, fleas, heat exhaustion. Like I mentioned, you know, on the sand dunes, a lot of times people don't realize that the sand's super hot on the dog's paws. So uh, it's not always great for the dog to be in these environments. You know, the parks want to maintain a wilderness, leave no trace sanctuary for both the residents of the park, the animals, and for the visitors. They, they want it to feel like a wilderness. And when there are people with their pets in and on these trails, it does take away from the wilderness feel. Banning dogs in these areas where they've been banned, it helps the National Park Service to better protect the ecosystem while still allowing for humans to recreate on the on the land. So what are some of the parks you can take dogs on the trails? Well, there's Acadia, Shenandoah, Petrified Forest, New River Gorge, White Sands, and in Great Sand Dunes, you can take your dog on a lot of trails, but not on all of them. And we have another suggestion for you, Ryan, right here in Washington State. For some great wilderness trails, uh, you should check out the North Cascades National Park Complex, which includes Ross Lake National Recreation Area and Lake Chelan National Recreation Area. You can take your leashed pets in both of the National Recreation Areas. Yeah, that's right. And you're allowed to take your dog on the section of the Pacific Crest Trail, the PCT, that runs through North Cascades National Park. And this is a beautiful trail, especially the part that runs north of Highway 20 all the way up to the Canadian border. Wait, I I thought you said leashed pets, and then you said dogs. So you can't take your leashed cat? (laughs) It says leashed pets. Right. Sure. You could take your leashed cat, your your guinea pig, your rabbit, I suppose any Small horse? Leashed small (laughs) horse? Sure. Goat. I don't know. People have all kinds of pets, don't they? (laughs) Okay. Well, I just want to be sure because we're going to get emails from the goat owners who feel like they're being left out. Okay. So, yes, that's right. Plus, you have a lot of great national forests that surround the park. 
and you can take your dog on those trails as well. Right. Your leashed dog, your leashed pet, all kinds of beautiful forests surrounding that North Cascades National Park complex. A lot of world-class hikes that are just outside the park boundary that are in the National Forest, for instance, Maple Pass, you can bring your dog on that as long as it's leashed. Definitely check that out if you're looking for a wilderness hike. Now, if you want to know the rules and where you can take your pet in in what park, you can look specifically on that park's website, or there is a Bark Ranger National Park Service website that has a lot of good information too. Yeah, and also uh, we have noticed that almost every single trail we go on, there is information at the trailhead on the uh, bulletin boards Mm -hmm. that give you information about what's allowed and what's not allowed on that trail regarding pets. Right. You know, I recently read an article in the Seattle Times about bear attacks in the state of Washington. It was titled, Should You Be Afraid of Bears in Washington? And I thought it was so interesting because there have been 14 recorded bear attacks on humans. Now, six of those attacks involved hunters, but six of the attacks involved dogs. And I was really surprised to read that. So what they explained had happened was dogs who were hiking with their owners chased the scent of a bear, ran after the bear, found the bear, and then they ran back to their owner with the bear in pursuit. And then consequently, the bear attacked the owner. Uh, and this happened six times. Yeah, that's that's not good. That's horrible. Yeah, that's, that's actually really bad. So that's something to consider. And, and then also, you know, on our neighborhood trails, dog owners have to be aware of coyotes. I mean, we have packs of coyotes, right, in our backyard, literally in our backyard. And, and unfortunately... They target uh, small dogs, so you got to be wary of that. Yeah, that's frightening as well. As you mentioned earlier, Matt, one of the reasons the Park Service doesn't allow dogs on most trails in the park is to protect the dogs. And of course, in addition to bears and coyotes, then national parks also have bison and wolves and other animals that, that could be a threat to your pup or your cat. Or small horse. Right. All right, so let's talk about horses for a second. Now, I, I will say, Ryan, we, we know your aggravation because we have hiked. We wrote about it in Dear Bob and Sue when we hiked in Yosemite to Mirror Lake. We were hiking basically in horse poop the entire way. And also in Glacier National Park, when we hiked to Cracker Lake, it was the same thing, just mud and horse poop. And it is very aggravating, no doubt. (laughs) It is, but there is, um, there's a couple of really big differences Mm -hmm. between horses and dogs, particularly uh, in their behavior and in their, the fecal matter that, that they leave behind. Right. I mean, first of all, horses always under somebody else's control. And there's a lot of history in the parks where the horses have been in the parks. The the horses are a big part of the history of establishing and building a lot of uh, infrastructure in in, Mm -hmm. in parks. So they don't bark, they don't jump, they don't bite other hikers. And their, their waste is relatively clean. Yes. I mean, compared to dogs. Yeah, let's talk about poop for a minute. All right. (laughs) Since horses don't eat meat, horse poop is considered relatively clean with very few bacteria, parasites, or viruses. And the, the Centers for Disease Control says that instances of humans getting sick from contact with horse manure is extremely rare. On the other hand, dog poop is very toxic with all manner of bacteria. 
And horse manure breaks down quickly and degrades naturally into the environment, whereas dog poop sticks around a lot longer. It gets into the groundwater. It can spread fecal coliform bacteria, which can then get into the reservoirs and our water systems. So there is a big difference between dog poop that's left behind and horse poop that's left behind. Yeah, and and people really do need to clean up after their dogs. We just see so much waste on the trails. And another thing, and I don't know if this is a trend, but people will bag their dog poop and then leave that on the trail. Yeah. And what I don't understand is that the the people who do that, their excuses, we're going to pick it up on the way back. Okay. So how about if we dumped all the trash in our backpack on the trail from our lunch and said, we're going to pick it up on the way back. Is that acceptable? Or if people left their baby's dirty diapers on the trail and said, we're going to pick it up on the way back, it's never, ever acceptable to leave your trash, your poop, your anything to pick up on the way back. You know, it's one of the responsibilities of a dog owner. And now I don't, we don't sound neutral and we don't sound like Switzerland anymore. Well, we just see it. We just see it so often. And it's not like, well, okay, yeah, I remember that one time. It's every time Mm -hmm. we hike, and I'm not exaggerating, it's not 30% of the time, it's 99% of the time we're walking past multiple bags of dog poop, and it's just not, it's just not okay. It's not. So Ryan, good luck finding hikes with your dog. I think your best bet is to skip the na- most of the national parks and head for the national forest because there are amazing hikes. You can take your dog on a leash. You can get into the wilderness and have a great time. Also check out public lands that are managed by the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM. I think most of those trails do allow dogs, but I think in, in, in most cases they have to be leashed. Right. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, Karen, what is our next question? Okay, our next question comes from Brent, and this is an interesting one. How do you handle a missed turn, both for the driver and the navigator? You go an hour or more out of the way. The driver feels stupid for missing the turn, especially when he or she was on high alert watching for it. Does that happen to you very often? You know, Brent, this sounds like a really good misadventure story right here that you had going on, but we're missing some key details. <laughs> I, yeah, I so, want to know what happened yeah, with you. So who's, <laughs> it sounds like he's he's hunting for information <laughs> to uh, bolster his argument in an ongoing debate. which With the navigator. Which we are not going to get into. We are not going to be helpful. We're reading into your question there, Brent. Something something happened between you and your navigator. But look, it happens to all of us. And yes, of course, we have missed turns. We've taken wrong turns. We've gone way out of our way from our destination before we realized it. And yeah, it's hard on the the driver. And I think it's even harder on the navigator. (laughs) Especially when the navigator is giving you bad information. (laughs) So... Generally, I'm driving, so mm-hmm. Karen's the navigator. And back in the paper map days, um, yeah, we 
we did a lot of wrong turns, uh, and that's just part of it's just part of the adventure. I mean, it can be aggravating if you only have so many hours in the day and you got to try to get to a spot and get it done before either the sun goes down or trying to beat the heat of the day, what, whatever. But I got to say, it, it happens a lot less now because we have so many electronic tools. Most cars have GPS. If you don't have GPS in your car, you can have an app like uh, Gaia GPS. Um, so it's it's a lot harder to get lost, although it, it still happens. Well, yeah, and sometimes those those electronic GPS maps are not correct. I have seen some that go like way around a park when you're trying to get into the heart of the park. So you kind of do need to have a sense um, in your own mind of where you're supposed to be, you know, as you're traveling. But one instance this happened to us was we were uh, we were driving to Moab because we were going to go to Arches and we were on I-70 heading eastbound. And, you know, there's that turnoff that goes to Moab. I think it's what, Highway 191, which we have taken probably 40 times. So in the navigator seat, I'm not really paying attention. And Matt missed that turn, the turn that we always take. And so, of course, we're on I-70, and you can't turn around, right? So we had to drive all the way to the next exit. Then we got to that next exit, and it turns out that we could take this smaller highway back to town, and it followed the Colorado River, and it was fantastic. Matter of fact, we have been back down that road several times now to find hikes and, and just to take it as a scenic drive. So so what it seemed like at the time when we thought we just missed a turn and we we're going to drive an extra hour out of our way. Turned out that we, we found this great place. Yeah, it was Highway 128 that we took from from the east into Moab. And if you haven't done that drive, it is absolutely beautiful. And you go by that whole Fisher Towers area where we've hiked. So it actually, not to sound like Pollyanna, you know, turn your frown upside down kind of thing. Make lemons. No, what is it? Make lemonade. I don't know. Um, you're on your own. You're you're on your own. Sometimes it does work out for the best because you get to see something that you hadn't planned on seeing. But you know, I think this speaks a lot to your travel partner, whether you're traveling with your your significant other or your sister or your best friend. I think it speaks a lot to relationships and attitudes while traveling because, as we all know. Traveling can be extremely frustrating, right? There can be bad weather, canceled flights, missed turns, all kinds of things can go wrong. And how people deal with this kind of frustration is key to enjoying your your trip. Yeah, it, it really is because it's easy to think that you're going to plan your trip and know where you're going and everything is going to go right, but it never does. And a lot of times those things that don't go well turn into really interesting adventures in in and of themselves. So uh, you just kind of have to have that attitude going into it. Yeah. Now, when we're traveling and, and that happens to us still, which it does, we try to keep our inner frustration to ourselves. Oh, we do? Um, <laughs> for the most part. We try. <laughs> we try. Because it can really ruin a trip when when one of the two people is being, um, 
what I want to say kind of nasty to the other. And we hear it all the time with people on trails. When does this happen? Did talk- you, are you, does, you're talking about other people. I'm talking about other people. Other now. people right. who were nasty. Nasty to each other and, you know, yelling at each other and upset with each other. And I, I just think, I think the key to having a happy vacation is um, keeping some of those frustrations to yourself and, and trying to get along and, you know, just trying to keep um, a lighter, more positive attitude when possible. <laughs> this is good advice. I'm going to edit just a little section of this <laughs> into a, like a voice message and put it on my phone <laughs> and play it back in the truck oh. from time to time. Are you mad? Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Just, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. All right. Well, Brett, and email us and let us know what really happened. <laughs> we want to know the whole story there. But thanks for your question. All right. So, Karen, do we have any more questions? <laughs> we have for more this questions. Episode? Our next question comes from Susan Kendall, and she wrote, I know I may sound soft, but here goes anyway. I prefer to hike in the winter. No ticks, mosquitoes, spider webs, or biting gnats. The colder, the better. On to my question. How do you enjoy summer hiking and camping when the bugs can carry you off? I am from Mississippi, so I know mosquitoes. But we were in the Everglades in November. They could have carried us off when we got on this one trail. I sprayed us down, and maybe they weren't biting us all over, but I got wigged out. I've seen you spraying your clothes before a hike or backpacking trip. How did you know you needed to do this? Maybe I just need to toughen up, but I think knowledge is key. And I think Susan's right. Knowledge is key. Yeah. Yeah. How did we know that we needed to do this? Well, one thing you can do is if you go on a site like All Trails and, and look at the trail reports from recent days, this is one of the things that, that people will say often in trail reports. They'll give bug bug updates. And so if the bugs are bad, you can usually read that in trail reports. Yeah. We never go on a hike anymore without reading the trail reports on all trails because it's always helpful, not just about bugs, but about, you know, maybe the road's closed or trees are down or it's completely muddy or icy or snowy. Really great information on all trails. Just, you know, put the name of your hike in and scroll down to the bottom where people do their trip reports. Um, Another thing, too, is we have had backcountry rangers when we have picked up our camping permits, our backpacking permits, they have told us, hey, it's really buggy out there, you know, be prepared. So that's another way that we also have found out about the, the bug situation. Yeah. And in general, you know, we hike a lot in mountainous areas. By about August, there's been enough cool weather in the mountains to kind of knock the bugs down. I mean, the the bug situation in July can be very different than in August. Right. right? And so if you have the option to wait a couple weeks for a particular hike, uh, you know, the later in the season, the better in terms of, of bugs. Yeah, and I think, like you said, knowledge is key, and doing research is key as to where you are going, what part of the country, and when you're going. And you can definitely choose more optimal times to visit the parks that are less buggy. So, for instance, you know, you mentioned the Everglades, so I looked that up. And biting insects are few and far between during the dry season, which is December through April. So that's the best time of year to visit the Everglades. And as we found out the hard way, April is tick season in Teddy Roosevelt National Park. So maybe you don't want to go on the trails there in April. And like you said, Matt, in Alaska, it's so much better to go in August than it is in July because the bugs 
are much less fierce in August. Right. We've been to Alaska in both July and August, and it's night and day different. Night and day. Yeah. We were there over July 4th one year, and... They weren't big mosquitoes, but they were tough. They were Alaska <laughs> mosquitoes. They literally bit us through our rain jackets. Oh my gosh, they were horrendous. Yeah. So when you're deciding what park you're going to go to and when, definitely Google the bug situation because sometimes are much better than others. Uh, a few other things that we do in the summer, you know, we usually hike high in the mountains. Once you get above tree line, the bugs drop off dramatically. And we also, we don't camp near boggy standing water if we can help it, because that's that also attracts a lot of mosquitoes and other bugs. And one trick we learned, I don't even know how we learned this. We found a product called Permathrin. Kind of hard to say, permethrin. Um, you can Google it and, and find out more detail. They, they now sell it a lot of places. This is a spray that you can use on your clothes. We put it on our backpacks, our tents, and it's worked really well. And they, they also have a product that can be used on skin. It's a different product. Mm-hmm. So, so there's the spray. So let's say we're going on a backpack trip. We'll hang a clothesline in the backyard, take like two changes of clothes, pants, shirt, socks, hat, everything, pretty much saturate those with the permethrin, let them dry completely before we pack them up and and take those on the trip. We also will spray our sleeping bags and our tent, our backpack. Mm -hmm. And what we have found is the bugs still kind of hover, but they don't land. Right. And if you don't wash these items in a washing machine, it, it does last for six weeks. So for instance, your tent and your backpack and those things, it will last for six weeks. Great, great product. Highly recommend it. But yeah, you need to do it at least a day ahead of time, saturate them and then let them dry. And one other tip with that is we have found if you want to wait until summer to buy it, you might not be able to find any because everyone else has bought it. So if you are planning a trip, get this before the season and before it sells out. Yeah, we bought it on Amazon. It's spelled P-E-R-M-E-T-H-R-I-N, permethrin. So just a couple other things. Wear long sleeves and long pants and some long socks underneath the pants. And this one, I struggled with this for a long time, but... Wear a head net or at least bring a head net. It's not the most fashionable thing in the world, but when those bugs are swarming in your eyes and, you know, because sometimes I'm breathing heavy, they go into my mouth. I tell you what, I would kill for a head net. So it's very inexpensive and something that's hugely important. Yeah. And with the head net, it only works if you can keep it off your skin. If the head net is resting on your skin, it does no good. Because the bugs can get get to you right through the net. So if you really want to keep the bugs away from your head and your face and uh, area, you want a brim that's 360 degrees and, and firm brim so it can keep the head net off your skin. Right. I hope that helps, Susan. So three takeaways on this one. Research the park you're going to to see if there's an optimal time to visit. Hike and camp in August rather than June and July. And we would suggest using chemicals, <laughs> yeah. both on your clothing and on your body. <laughs> so good luck and happy hiking to you. Okay. Okay, our next question comes from Allison Holland, and she wrote, We own a forerunner, and I am trying to build a proper road kit. 
air compressor, tire gauge, shovel, etc. because we enjoy going off-road. I had never heard of a snatch toe strap until you mentioned it on your podcast. It sounds like you have used it at least once. Can I ask you what you found that you liked? Since you have done what you keep in your backpack, maybe you could do one for a road kit. Okay, that's a huge question <laughs> um, that I could literally talk for a couple of hours on, and I won't. But I, what I will do is go over some of the basics that we carry or you should carry, and then I'll go into more detail on the snack strap in, in particular, because we've gotten this question many times. But first, one thing you need to keep in mind with recovery gear, it's not always just for you. Matter of fact, probably more times than not, it helps you help somebody else get rescued, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's just part of being a good wilderness citizen to uh, be well prepared. So if somebody else needs help, that was our situation. Uh, I've only used my snack strap once, and that's to help pull somebody else out of the sand. We were in uh, Utah by Page, Arizona, and we were down visiting the area there by Lone Rock. On Lake Powell. On Lake Powell, which is now no longer a lake right there where we were. Somebody had driven into some deep sand and we pulled them out. I will talk about the snack. I know it's hard to say. (laughs) I will talk about the snack strap. But first, here are some things, kind of the basics that, uh, that, that you should have. A shovel. I carry a small shovel in the back of the truck just for digging out of deep snow or maybe... If I do get stuck in the sand, it, it allows me to kind of dig the tires out and to put something underneath them. Um, a saw. I've now carried a little pruning saw. And when I say little, I mean like about an 18-inch pruning saw. And I never thought we would have to carry one of these. But when we go to these forest service cabins in December, a lot of times trees will fall across the road. And there's nobody to clear those trees. Um, chains, you always want to carry chains. I now carry them 12 months of the year because we've encountered snow and even in July and August, uh, gloves, those are really helpful for any of the stuff you have to do to help recover. I carry a little air compressor. It's just a little Ryobi battery operated air compressor, just in case I need to, um, top off the tires or in a rare case where we have to air down our tires and on a rough road, and then I have to reinflate them. It is super basic because I don't want to carry a full-size air compressor with me. The other thing people carry a lot, we don't, but I'm thinking that we we probably will, are the Max Tracks. And Max Tracks is a brand name of these devices. They look like a three-foot-long tire tread, and you can use these to put under your tires to get out of deep sand. Sometimes you can use them to get out of snow. You kind of no, need to know how to use them, and which is a comment that goes for any of this equipment. But the snack strap, everyone should carry a snack strap. And I'm not going to go into the details of how to use it uh, because there are a lot of them. I would suggest going on YouTube, uh, searching for it, and watch several videos about this, particularly ones from ARB. ARB is the name of a company Uh, they make snack straps. There are other companies that make them, but they have good instructional videos on how to use them. Essentially what this is, it's a flat nylon strap that it's it's used to connect two vehicles. So one vehicle stuck in either the snow or mud or sand, and it connects the two vehicles, connects to the one that's going to pull you out. The, the reason it's made out of nylon, it is designed to flex. It's like a big rubber band. It stretches about 20% of its length. 
in order to essentially pop another vehicle out of a stuck spot, when you connect a snack strap properly to two vehicles, the one that's pulling out starts off a little fast and actually causes the strap to stretch. And then when it refluxes, that adds an extra bit of pressure and helps pull the other vehicle out. The reason a snack strap stretches, not only does it help pull the other vehicle out, that stretch reduces the jarring effect when you pull another vehicle out. If you use a tow rope that doesn't stretch, that jarring effect could damage one of the vehicles. So one thing to keep in mind if you are going to buy a snack strap, bigger is not always better. They recommend that you get one that's rated for three to four times the gross weight of your vehicle. So you, you should know what the gross weight of your vehicle is. The reason you want one that's three to four times the gross weight of your vehicle, if you put too much pressure on that strap, you want the strap to be the first thing that breaks. And so if you get a strap that's too strong, you could actually cause damage to one of your vehicles. So in addition to a snack strap, you need recovery shackles. They're also called bow shackles. It's a little device that connects to the recovery point on your vehicle and the other vehicle that the snack strap goes into. Um, you want those to be rated higher in strength than the snack strap because you don't want the metal to be the first thing that breaks. Because if the metal breaks before the snack strap, now you have a piece of metal attached to the biggest rubber band you've ever seen in your life, and that's going to snap and hit somebody. Question. Yes? So what you're saying is don't just buy the snack strap. You have to have the shackles to attach it. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So the snack strap has a loop at the end of it that, that attaches to the shackle. It would be real easy to just slip that over a trailer hitch ball. Mm -hmm. Do not do that. Okay. Because a trailer hitch ball might not be rated strong enough to pull, you know, 17,000 pounds or, or, or more. If that trailer hitch ball breaks while you're trying to pull somebody out, now you have a one and a half inch piece of metal attached to the biggest rubber band you've ever seen in your life, and it's going to hit something. It's going airborne. It's going airborne and, and no joke, uh, it can kill you. And unfortunately, people have been killed this way. It's just, you have to be super careful w with doing this. A lot of other details regarding a snack strap. I strongly encourage you to go to YouTube, mm -hmm. search the term, and watch a few videos, particularly from the manufacturers that tell you how to use this properly. That's a, probably a lot more detail <laughs> than you ever wanted to know about a snack strap. <laughs> So about what does the one cost, Matt? Is it $10 or $1,000 or somewhere in between? Uh, somewhere in between. I mean, I think the one I got was was in the $60 to $70 range. Okay. All of these devices, are they're cool to buy. They're cool to play with. You need to know how to use them before you get into a situation where you need to use it. Right. Because uh, right. there's nothing more aggravating than reading the instructions of a thing in a uh, situation where you need to be recovered. All right. Thank you for the... Report on the snatch strap. Um, You're welcome. Allison, I hope that's helpful as you assemble your proper road kit. Okay.
All right, what's our next question? Okay, our next question comes from Carla. Carla with a K. Hi, Matt and Karen. I am planning a summer trip to Olympic National Park this summer and just listened to your Olympic podcast. I am a bit freaked out about the ferry from Seattle to Port Angeles. Is it easier to navigate the ferry than I think it will be? That's a really good question. We've never talked about the ferry. No, we haven't. And just so you know, the ferry doesn't run from Seattle to Port Angeles. It runs from Seattle to the Kitsap Peninsula. There's several ferries that you can take, and then you drive from that area up to Port Angeles. So if you happen to be staying in downtown Seattle, then you would take the Seattle to Bainbridge Island Ferry. That leaves right from downtown Seattle, and then you drive the rest of the way. If you're not staying downtown, we prefer to take the Edmonds Ferry. Now, Edmonds is a suburb that's just north of Seattle. That goes to a town called Kingston, and then you can drive from there. So those are the two most direct ferry options. I think that Edmonds Ferry actually is faster even if you were in Seattle proper to drive up to Edmonds, take take the ferry over to Kingston and drive from there. It reduces some of the driving and traffic. So the ferry schedules are posted online. It's the Washington State Ferry System. Just make sure when you're looking at the schedule that you're looking at the correct day of the week because, you know, Sundays might be different than Tuesdays. And make sure you're looking at the correct direction of travel. So whether you're going eastbound or westbound, obviously the times are different. Yeah, and it is crowded in the summer. So you want to arrive at least an hour early. And this is taking ferries is also one of those things where you want to have a flexible frame of mind. Yes. (laughs) We have more than once been the last car or the the first car not to make the ferry that we can see pulling into dock and we end up on the next ferry that's an extra you know half hour or hour wait so you can drive yourself crazy trying to get there just in time or or get there too early or too late whatever you just have to be flexible in your state of mind when trying to make the ferry yeah and if you miss it you're already you're automatically in line and you will get on the next one so so here's how it works basically in a nutshell as you are approaching the ferry terminal, you, you look for signs that say ferry traffic. Usually they direct you to the right-hand lane. That's where the ferry traffic is funneled. And then you pull up to a ticket booth where you pay your fee. And then the ticket person directs you to a specific traffic lane. They're usually numbered, you know, 1 to 10. And she will tell you, go into lane 8. So you pull your car in there. And then you wait for the ferry to get there and for the boarding process. Yeah, generally, when when they direct you to your lane, you pull up, you pull behind the car that's already in the lane, and you turn your engine off. Mm -hmm. You don't let it sit there and idle for five minutes or even a half an hour. And then you will see people park their car, turn their car off, and then go like look for a snack or whatever. And and that's all fine. However, you got to be back at your car when it's time to to load and oftentimes people aren't and that causes traffic jams and whatever but uh you know just just know that if you are catching the 11 a.m ferry that ferry will pull away from the dock at 11 a.m right they don't start loading at 11 the boat is moving Mm -hmm. at 11 
Right. So now everyone is in a lane, everyone's lined up and ready. And and when they are ready to board the cars, they have men out there directing you. They will tell you where to pull onto the ferry, what lane and where to park. So it's very easy. You don't have to decide anything. They will, will literally point you to where they want you to park your car. Sometimes they're women. You're right. I shouldn't say he. Oftentimes they're women, he or she. Thank you for that correction. You're welcome. You, you are right. And then once you park your car, you know, some people who ride the ferries all the time, they sit in their car for the for the ferry ride over. Don't do that if this is your first time. Get out. There's a set of stairs. Just look for the stairway. You walk up the stairs into the ferry proper where there's plenty of seating and some incredible views as you take your ferry trip across. Yeah, the other thing you do when you go up to the decks, what you want to do is you want to listen for the PA announcer to announce your car's license plate number. (laughs) (laughs) Because they will tell you if your car alarm is on. Mm -hmm. To make a long story short, we had a vehicle at one time that the motion of the ferry, it, it would feel the car moving thought somebody was breaking into it and it would set off the alarm. And so many, many times our license plate number was called. And they will also announce on the PA when it's time for you to return to your car when the the ship is about to dock at its destination. It's the same process. They will direct you when it's your turn to exit the ferry. And then, you know, then you drive the rest of the way to Port Angeles. So it is actually nothing to freak out about. It's easy. It's very well run. And You know, our Washington State ferry system is just such an iconic part of the Pacific Northwest. It's a great experience, not something you should uh, panic about or or feel stress about. Just remember, 25% of the cars on that ferry are on there for the first time also. So it's it's not like, you know, everyone knows what they're doing except you. And then they're very good about directing you where to go, when, and and all of that. So not something to freak out about. Right. Also, one more note. They used to have an incredible snack bar on the ferry systems. Now, I know they have cut back and there are staff shortages and things, but you might check if you're hungry and see if you can get something to drink and something to eat. There are also restrooms too. So, you know, lots of things to explore on the ferry, you know, once you're up there from your car. Yeah, but those two particular ferries, the sailings are not very long. Right. So you don't have a lot of time. You don't. They're pretty fast sailing. So Uh, anyway, Carla, it's going to be really fun for you. Do not panic about it. It's very easy. And we hope you have an amazing trip. Yeah. Okay. Is that it, Karen? We have one last question. All right. This is from Jeanette. I hope, Jeanette, I'm pronouncing your name correctly. And she wrote, Dear Karen and Matt, I love your podcast. Lots of great info and very entertaining. But I have one burning question. What kind of pizza, regular cheese, toppings, inquiring minds want to know? (laughs) I just order meat lovers. And even if the pizza (laughs) restaurant doesn't have a meat lovers, I just say meat lovers and they they know what I mean. And so that's... You want all meat all the time. That's what we do. (laughs) Well, that's what you do. So actually, we could not be more opposite on the pizza choices because I love those thin, thin pizzas like you get in Italy that are like paper thin. And Matt loves- Paper thin. I don't know. I don't like paper thin. Anything that I eat to be paper thin. (laughs) Matt loves the the Chicago deep dish. You know, he wants wants a slab of pie that's- Eight inches thick. <laughs> Why is this funny? <laughs> because it's all bread. 
No, there's meat on top of it. There's hunks of meat on top. And then the other thing, too, is he is the, as he said, the meat lover, and I'm the veggie lover. So mine would be like mushrooms and onions and garlic and, and all kinds of vegetables on the paper-thin crust, and his would be pepperoni, sausage, bacon, um, all that stuff on top of a thick crust. Yeah, so there you go. It's as but, opposite as you can. But do you remember that one time? This was not very long ago, maybe last year or the year before we... We were traveling with, I think, John and Lolly, and we were at a brewery that also made pizza. And we decided we were having such a good time that we did not want to leave to go to another restaurant. We were just going to eat the pizza there. So I go in. You, I was sent in by the crowd to go <laughs> order pizza. And she said, oh, we have a meat lovers and a Supreme. And I said, "What? what's on your Supreme? And she looked up at me and said, you know what's on a Supreme. She sassed me. <laughs> and, and instead of being offended, I was like impressed. I'm like, you know what? That's right. That was a stupid question I should not have asked. If you're going to get a Supreme, you, you, you're you not going to ask what's on it. You just, you just get Supreme. And okay. same way with the meat lovers. You don't yeah. ask. No, no. Just give me all the meats. That's what you say. Yeah. All the I mean, meats. unless we're somewhere that like serves squirrel or something like that. Moose, moose meat. <laughs> moose meat, although that'd be fine. So what we usually do, if, you know, some pizza places, they only serve one size, right? It's a big one to share. There are a lot of places like that where you can only order one size. So in that case, what we'll usually do is have them do half of it meat lovers and half of it veggies which you know is great and then we each have what we like but if if we go to a place where they have small size pizzas then we each order whatever we like but somehow we've managed to stay uh, happily married all these years even though our pizza choices could not be more different that's right <laughs> okay so that's that's the pizza question that is the pizza question. So that wraps it up for today. We have so many more mailbag questions that we're doing another mailbag episode next week. Hopefully we can get them all answered. If not, there might be a third the following week. We have a lot of great questions coming up. If you have a mailbag question for us, you can email it to Smith at gmail.com. There you go. us today. We appreciate each and every one of you who tune in. And hello to all of our friends in New Zealand. New Zealand. We need to go to explore the parks in New Zealand. They have 13 national parks. Did you know that? I did not know that. And the scenery looks incredible. I think they filmed a lot of movies in the parks in New Zealand. I would love to go. And wouldn't that be a great podcast episode? We're going to have to pencil that in for down the road. Yeah, we will. But more immediately, like next month, we have some great episodes coming out before we take our summer break. And I cannot wait to find out what those episodes are. <laughs> now, if you're new to our podcast, please follow us on Instagram at Matt and Karen Smith for photos, videos, updates, park news, and random pictures of Cheez-Its. You know, Matt, you forgot to mention Cheez-Its in your roadside emergency kit. They're not for emergencies. It's actually an emergency if you run out of them. They're, they're for everyday use. I guess that's true. You would put a box of Cheez-Its in your emergency kit just in case you ran out of Cheez-Its. But then you'd have more in the front seat. 
just put a box kind of every three feet wherever you go, and so you're always within reach of each other.